Lord, you are just such an incredible Father, a beautiful and wonderful Savior. And today as we consider the words of the Apostle Peter, I pray, God, that that you would use your word to just heighten our sense of appreciation and joy and gratitude of what it means that we belong to you and this great salvation that we have sung about today. Be glorified in this time, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started, I have a little prop today, a little illustration. So this is my high school letterman jacket from the high school I went to, Valley High School. I lettered in uh, baseball, varsity baseball, three years in a row. And um, I was going to wear this today, but uh, (laughs) it didn't fit. When I graduated high school, um, I'm six foot. When I graduated high school, I weighed about 190 pounds. And let's just say I, lay, I weigh a little bit more than that uh, today. So I couldn't, I couldn't really, it kind of looked odd when I tried it on. So, um, but the reason why I'm, I'm putting this here is a little illustration. I'll just drape it across the pulpit for a moment here. Okay, let you get a good look at it. But, uh, <laughs> so my senior year of high school, I was co-captain on the baseball team. And a friend of mine, Ricky Simpson, and I, we went to one day um, to my house at lunchtime to go and watch the National League Baseball playoffs. The Dodgers were playing the Astros. It was the Divisional Championship Series. And, um, but the problem was, is my high school was a closed campus. And so in order to get off campus, you had to have supervision. So we had to sneak off campus to go to my house to watch the game. So we're there eating lunch. We're watching the game. It was a great game. But it got to the time where we needed to head back. And my dad, who happened to be off that day as well and was watching the game with us, he suggested that we just ditch our fifth grade class and watch the rest of the game. And so I'm thinking, this is awesome. My dad is telling me to ditch school to watch baseball. And so that's exactly what we did. We ditched our fifth fifth period class, and so it was a great game, and the Dodgers won, and we were on our way back, and in order to get on campus, we had to sneak on campus. Well, we have these security guards that would drive around these little golf carts, and well, we got busted. And so the security guard takes us to the principal's office, and we're sitting there before Principal McKinley, and I'll never ever forget what he said that day. He said to Ricky and I, he said, you know what, you guys, you guys being top athletes here at our school, you got to understand something. You represent our school. That jacket that you're wearing, and I would wear the jacket on days like this when it was, you know, cooler. It, it represents not just your team, but it represents our school. He says, so you guys, you're, you're to be role models here, so act like it. I'll never forget that. That made a really, really stark impression upon me. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, nice story, Pastor Rob, but what does that have to do with what we're going to be looking at today? Well, Paul encourages us in the New Testament in several places to put on Christ, 
to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 14, he literally says, clothe yourself with Christ. So you could say that you also are wearing a letterman jacket, so to speak, today. And the letters on that aren't the letters of a school, but it's the letters JC that stand for Jesus Christ. That, that you are, have his emblem, if you would, upon your life. You belong to him. You are a part of him. You are to represent him. So act like it. You see, who you are is supposed to affect how you live and how you respond and how you react to the things in our culture as well as how you react to other members of the body of Christ. And Peter is going to have a lot to say in this epistle about how we are to live in this day and age as Christ followers. In fact, next week we're going to see where he exhorts us as believers to walk in holiness. And we're going to talk about what that means. But we've seen that Peter spends the first 12 verses of this epistle talking about our salvation, talking about who we are in Christ, and because who we are in Christ is really the catalyst for how we are to live in all seasons and all situations of life. And we noted in our past studies that Peter, he takes and gives the believers there seven reasons why they can rejoice, even though they're going through great suffering. And those seven reasons are all connected to their relationship with Jesus. And we broke those down in our previous two studies. If you missed them, I encourage you, you know, go back and listen to those. They're on our website. But today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12, where Peter is going to expound here on the blessings of our salvation. Now, in verse 3, he gives us really the, the basis of this great salvation when he says that we have been born again, according to God's mercy, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's saying there that our salvation and hope is built upon one thing, an empty tomb. The fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. That we have a Savior who is risen and alive. Well, as he wraps up this introductory opening of his letter, Peter is going to share several things about this salvation that are just amazing. I want to pick up, for context's sake, reading in verse 6. I'm going to just put this away now in this little box here, but... Notice what he says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now key, here's key, verse 8. Whom having not seen you love, and though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. 
searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have, been, who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Pause there and let me have your attention. Here in verses 8 and 9, Peter says that our relationship to Jesus and the hope of what is coming creates in us this joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. The word inexpressible literally carries the idea that it leaves you speechless. It's like, it's like there's just no words. There's just nothing that you can say that you are just so overcome by joy at the salvation, at the provision that God has given to you. And when you're finally able to speak, what comes out is the highest form of praise because you are just so overwhelmed and overcome by the goodness and the greatness of God. Now, verses 8 and 9 are very, very interesting. And I believe that Peter is drawing upon something here that he actually heard Jesus say after the resurrection. You recall when Jesus rose again that there was a night where he appeared in an upper room to his disciples. And all of them were there except for Thomas. And so they saw him alive, the disciples did, and they were so excited. And when Thomas comes later, they tell him, you know, we saw Jesus and and he was alive, but Thomas doesn't believe them. That's why Thomas is given, you know, by commentators that name, Doubting Thomas. But if you really, really look at the context or look at what, what Thomas really said, it goes far beyond doubting. In fact, let me read this to you. It'll be on the screen. This is Thomas's reaction in John chapter 20, verse 25. It says, so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is not doubting here. He is refusing to believe. He is completely convinced in his mind that this is not true. Well, eight days later, the disciples are together together again, and this time Thomas is with them, when Jesus suddenly appears, and we pick that up, we see in verse 26. Jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, and I love this. It's like he goes right to Thomas. Like, okay, we're going to deal with your doubts. He says, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. In that moment, Thomas is just undone as he sees his risen Lord. And what Jesus says next is absolutely epic. And this is what I believe that Peter is drawing upon here in verses 8 and 9. Notice it'll be on the screen. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you catch that? Do you catch what Jesus said? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Guys, that's us. We have believed in him even though we have not seen him. And the word that Jesus uses here for blessed is makarios in the Greek. And it's a word that speaks of the highest possible level of blessing. And I want you to note this. It's reserved for those who have never seen, never touched, and yet believed. That's us. Now think of it this way. Which do you think most people would consider the highest blessing? To have seen Jesus and touched Jesus? Or to simply hear about him and believed in him. I think all of us would say, oh, the highest blessing, obviously, would be able to see him and to touch him. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the highest level of blessing is reserved for those who simply believe even though they haven't seen him. But they believe in him. And that's exactly, I think, what Peter is saying here in verse 8 and 9. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Now, having said that, please understand this. Our faith in Jesus isn't a blind faith. It's not an empty faith. It's not a, I'm going to jump off this bridge and hope there's water underneath, you know, type of thing. No, our faith is based on evidence. Our faith is based on reality. Our faith is based on the proof, the reality that there's an empty tomb over in Israel and no one has ever been able to come up with a a good explanation for why it's empty and it's the tomb that Jesus was buried in. Our, Our faith is based on all the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his birth, his death, his life, and his resurrection. So there is is. Fact, there's evidence that goes along with our faith. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God is the basis of where that evidence comes from. But having said that, we are believing in someone that we haven't seen, that we haven't touched. And have you ever wondered... Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just, you know, pull back the clouds one day and stick out his face and say, what's up, world, it's me, you know? Check me out. Have you ever thought about that? Well, if that happened, there would be a whole lot of people who believed in him, but that's not faith. In fact, you remember during Jesus' earthly ministry, there were a lot of people who followed him because of the miracles he did, because of the healings that he did. But the minute Jesus started giving some teachings that, you know, kind of ruffled their, challenged them a little bit, they bailed. They were like, oh, we can't handle this. You know, we're not following this guy anymore. You know, we have a saying in our culture, believing is seeing. Well, that's not faith. And the Bible says that God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, here's the thing. There is a day coming, and I think it's soon. When Jesus is going to come back to this world, and the Bible says when he does, that every eye is going to see him. And at that moment, the whole entire world, they're going to believe. They're going to realize that he's exactly who he said he was. But you know what? For many, for those who are here at that time, it's going to be too late. Paul the Apostle, he talked about this in Philippians chapter 2 when he said this, speaking of Jesus, therefore God 
also has highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul's saying, look, there's a day coming when the entire world is going to bow and they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so that's why I often say that you can bow now and give your life to Jesus and put your faith in Jesus, or you can bow then, but when you bow then, it's going to be too late because judgment is coming. So there is a day coming when Jesus is going to come, but this is what faith is. Faith is that God said it, and I believe it. God said it, God gave a promise, and I'm putting my faith in that, that I can take that to the bank. I believe in the truth that Jesus is who he said he was. And you see, faith is the key that moves the heart of God. In in Matthew chapter 8, we see a story about a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus This guy has a servant who's really, really ill. And he comes to Jesus and says, my servant is really, really ill. Um, And Jesus says, okay, great, let's go to your house. Come on, I'll come with you. And Jesus, or the, the centurion says to Jesus, I don't need you to come to my house. I'm a man of authority. I say to, you know, my servants go and they go and come and they come. And he says, I realize you have authority over sickness. So all you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be made well. And we're told there in Matthew chapter 8 verse 10 that when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And when it says he marveled. The idea is like his jaw dropped. He was just amazed. I haven't found, seen this kind of faith even among the people of Israel. And Jesus said to that centurion, go home, your, your servant is healed. And he touched him. Faith is understanding that God can do anything. That he's the God that, that works in the impossible. But faith is connected. Like Pete said today, it's not, you know, faith in faith, but it's faith in the object of our faith. It's faith in the promises that he has given. Faith is not you demanding of God your will and what you want. Remember, you know, years ago, this was a popular teaching that was circling around part of the church. Kind of the word faith group, where it was, you need to visualize what you want. Remember that, you know? Hey, you want a Cadillac, you want a Mercedes, just visualize it. Put a picture on your fridge, and if you have enough faith, you know, God's going to give you that. You just blab it and grab it, and, you know, that was kind of the, the idea. And they'd always attach to it, and please don't forget to write us a check. You know, that's going to help too, you know? And, but that's not what faith is. That's making God out to be a genie in a bottle. Faith that moves the heart of God is faith that says, God said it, and I believe it, and I'm going to walk in that. It's based upon what he has said. It's based upon his promises. We see a great example of this in the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's this really old guy that God comes to and says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. In fact, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the heaven. The problem was Abraham was really old and he didn't have any kids yet. 
But it says there that Abraham believed in the promise of God. He's like, okay, I don't know how you're going to do this, God, but I believe it. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted, God accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, I love Paul's commentary on that scene from Genesis 15, found in Romans chapter 4. I want to read this to you. It'll be on the screen. Paul writes this, For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life and who creates things new out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, and that's how many descendants you will have, and Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. I love this. God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to make of you this great nation. And Abraham like looks at his body. He's almost 100. And he's like, man, I'm as good as dead. I mean, he looks at himself and he thinks, I'm, I'm busted, you know. And then he looks at Sarah. He doesn't say it, but he thinks it. And she's busted too, you know. <laughs> but we're told that he believed. Like, Okay. I don't know how you're going to do this, God, but I'm believing that you are going to do this. And verse 20 says, And Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises, and because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. So Abraham says, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I believe this. And God says, and because of that, I'm going to declare you today righteous in my sight. Now notice verse 23. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, but it was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raises Jesus our Lord from the dead. Here's what Paul is saying. Abraham simply believed in the promise of God. He didn't know how God was going to do it. He simply believed and God said, I'm declaring you righteous. And he says, but it wasn't just for Abraham. It was also for us because when you simply believe in what Jesus did, that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that you could have life, you put your faith in what he did. God says, I'm declaring you righteous as well. Isn't that amazing? So the question is, do you have faith today? Even though you haven't seen him, you believe in him, know this, God is blessed by that. Know this, you are saved by that. Know this, God declares that you are righteous by that. And your faith might even be weak at times and far from perfect, but God is still moved by your faith. Now here's what's interesting about the story of Abraham. Abraham faltered in his faith. You see, years go by, and they don't have a kid. And so Sarah, his wife, says, you know, I think God needs our help. Remember that little cute Egyptian gal, servant gal, Hagar, we picked up in Egypt? Why don't you go have sex with her 
and hopefully she'll get pregnant and you can have a, a child through her and we'll kind of get this whole thing started and, and that'll be, you know, the promised child. And Abraham's, okay, let me get this straight. You want me to go have sex with that cute little servant girl and hopefully, you know, produce a child by her. And Sarah's like, yeah, that's what I want you to do. And Abraham's like, okay, I think I can do that. And, uh, and sure enough, they have a kid. They name him Ishmael. But here's what's interesting. Later on, when God does bless Sarah and she has a baby, his name is Isaac, and God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah. Why does he call him his only son? Because, listen, God does not recognize our efforts in the flesh. And Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah's effort in the flesh. Now, God did bless Ishmael. In fact, Ishmael becomes the father of all the Arab nations today um, that hate Israel, or the ones that, a lot of them that hate Israel. And so that conflict that started way back then still carries on to this very day. But here's my point. We're told in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, that Abraham patiently endured to obtain the promise. Now check this out. Those of us who know the story were like, patiently endured? No, he didn't. I mean, come on, Ishmael. We know that whole part of the story. He didn't patiently endure. But listen, that's how God sees things on the other side of Calvary. On the other side of Calvary, he sees us, our sins forgiven, our sins forgotten. In God's eyes, Abraham, he patiently endured to obtain the promise. Listen, you have faith in Jesus that he is risen from the dead. God says it's that faith that has saved you. You have faith that God keeps his promises. You believe that God, you believe that about God today. Listen, you are blessed with the highest form of blessing. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, Satan, the Bible says, is a thief and a liar. And he loves to come and challenge us. He loves to cast doubt. Do you really think that's how God feels about you? Did God really, really say that? I mean, come on. He hasn't come through yet. You really think that's going to happen? I think you need to help him out. That was the problem Aaron and Abraham and Sarah fell into. Oh, we got to help God out. You really think God's hearing your prayers? I mean, I don't think they're really penetrating the, ce- the ceiling. I mean, he's a, he's a liar, a great liar. And the moment we give into our flesh... And we go against the promise of God and we try to help him out and take matters into our own hands. Then Satan turns from being the liar to the accuser. And he comes and he says, look what you did. Man, you've blown, you went too far this time. God, he's just done with you. He doesn't love you. You've blown it for the last time. And listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. In fact, you remember the story in Matthew chapter 17? That dad who brings his demon-possessed son to, to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would be able to cast the demon out. Remember what Jesus said, if you, have, if you have faith, anything's possible. And that dad said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Remember how Jesus responded? Jesus didn't say, well, bro, I'm, I'm sorry, your, your faith just isn't registering high enough on the faith meter today, so I, I can't do anything for you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, okay, I can take that. And he healed that boy. He cast the demon out of that boy. 
Listen, you believe today, even though you haven't seen, you're just holding on to the promise of God. You have a reason to rejoice today with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because it's through your faith that God has declared you today righteous, that you are his child, that your sins have been forgiven, that you are a child of grace. You're his and he loves you. And what Peter says next only adds to this blessing. Look again at verse 10. He says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come. In other words, they were writing about a salvation that was coming. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What Peter's saying is the Old Testament prophets, they were writing about a salvation that was to come. In fact, remember Isaiah. He writes in Isaiah chapter 53 describing what was happening and taking place at the crucifixion. He's writing there about about the Messiah, about Jesus and how he would suffer when he says this. Let me read it to you. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he he was despised, and, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace key phrase there, was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, writing 400 years before the crucifixion, was describing what this suffering Messiah was going to come and do. And it would be through his suffering that he would make a way for us to be at peace with God, to experience true and full salvation. And notice what Peter says here in verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, he's saying that you and I, we get to experience what they could only have imagined. They wrote of something that they never ever saw the fulfillment of, but we have seen and we live in the fulfillment of what they were writing about. You know, in the Old Testament, when they looked at the idea of atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he'd take the blood of the sacrificial lamb, he'd sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and this is what it meant. It meant that the sins of the nation of Israel were covered. Picture like a blanket going over them. For an entire year. And then the next year he'd have to do that again. That's atonement in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, because Jesus, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, is that final sacrificial lamb. Atonement now means for us in the New Testament, on the other side of Calvary, it means at one minute. That we now are at one with God. That we can be at peace with God. That our sins aren't just covered. Our sins are forgiven. And they're cleansed. And they're forgotten. Put as far as the east is from the west. And so we are blessed, church. 
because we are living in that reality of what the Old Testament believers could only dream of. Complete forgiveness, complete cleansing. And what Peter says at the end of verse 12 is absolutely fascinating. Look at it. He says, these are things which the angels desire to look into. What is he talking about? The word look there literally means to search and to study, to dive deep. It's the same word that's used of Peter on, the, on resurrection day when he comes to the empty tomb and it says that he went in and he looked. He sees the grave clothes and that they're empty, that there's no body in them. And it says that he looked and the idea there, he examined the scene. And here's what Peter's saying. When it comes to our salvation, that this is something that the angels, that they they study, they search, they look at, that the angels are literally mesmerized by our salvation. And here's why. What is the one attribute of the character of God that the angels never get to experience personally? I mean, they know firsthand of his holiness and his majesty and his glory. Isaiah in chapter 6 says he saw a vision of heaven and there's God on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. And what are the angels doing? The angels in his presence are just falling on their faces and going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And listen, it's not a robotic response. It's a response that is the natural response of being in his presence, that they're just mesmerized by his glory. It's like when you and I see an incredible sunset. And we just are, it just stops us in our tracks. You know when that happens? And like you just stop and you're just like mesmerized. Like, wow, that is amazing. And you pull out your phone and you're taking a picture or you're calling somebody saying, hey, have you seen, have you seen that, that sunset? That's, that's the angels in the presence of God. They are mesmerized by his holiness, his majesty, and his glory. And they're constantly experiencing that. But the one thing that they haven't personally experienced is his grace and mercy. See, the Bible teaches us that Satan was formerly an angel. And he decided that he wanted the glory. He wanted to elevate himself above God. And so God booted him out of heaven. But before he left, he had actually made an impact on quite a few of the other angels because it said a third of the angels were cast out with him. And listen, there is no grace and no mercy for those angels. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And those angels that were cast out will never be let back in again. They are reserved, the Bible says, for the lake of fire. That's their destiny. But the angels who are in heaven, they look at us And they see something radically different. They see people that God made who rebelled, who sinned, who turned their backs on God. And you know what happened? 
you know what happened? You know what took place? God didn't destroy us. Instead, he sent his only begotten son to come to this world and die on a cross to pay the price for our sins. And he offers to us forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the angels look at that and they, and they just marvel at the grace and the mercy of God. It just, the way God treats us just magnifies his grace. I, I bet you there's times where they're just like, really again? Like, like another time, like he's going to be gracious to them. Again, God is so incredibly gracious, is the view. But they haven't experienced that personally. So they're mesmerized. They're captivated by our stories as they see over and over again the grace and mercy of God being displayed in living color in our lives. And you know, we're told in the book of Revelation that there's a song that is sung in heaven and the lyrics of it go like this. True and righteous are your ways, O Lord. That's what the angels say. True and righteous are your ways, O Lord. And listen, as we close today, if you believe in Jesus today, even though you haven't seen him, you're blessed. You are blessed with the highest form of blessing. And you can, because of that, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because God loves you and he sent his son to save you and he's committed to you. And because of that, you have a glorious destiny in Christ today, which means that you can live with confidence in your present reality, no matter what your situation is no matter what it is that you are going through today. The question is, do you believe? If you believe, oh, you're blessed. If you don't believe, I want to encourage you to believe, to put your faith today, to put your trust today in Jesus who loves you, who died for you. Bow your heart today because If you don't bow today, when he comes and you bow, it'll be too late. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous blessing that we have of this great salvation that those in the Old Testament only dreamed about. They only imagined that they wrote about but never experienced. God, we thank you that we are living in the reality of that. The reality of being people whose lives are daily, that your mercies, the Bible says, are new every morning, that every morning, every day, we get to experience your grace and mercy upon us through Jesus Christ. And the angels look on and they marvel. Lord, we are so grateful. And because of that, Lord, we just we want to rejoice. As we keep our head bowed and our eyes closed and just remain sort of in this attitude right now of prayer, I think the only proper response for us today would be to what, what Peter has laid before us is, is that we would rejoice in so great a salvation that we would declare the greatness of our Savior. 